So, uh, would you describe yourself um, as an optimist? Um, do you um, love variety and adventure? Uh, would your friends call you fun-loving? And if one of your friends would call you up and promise you even more fun and adventure than what you were going to do on your own, would you drop everything and, and go off and do that? If yes, then you may be a seven. Uh, we're in week uh, seven of our series on the nine different personality types of the Enneagram. Today we're looking at the personality type called the enthusiast. Now sevens are the most popular of the nine personality types. They have lots of friends and it's no wonder for they are fun to be with. They love to tell funny stories and and jokes. They are, they are optimistic to a fault, always able to see that silver lining in every dark cloud. Uh, don't worry, be happy is their life motto. And their hero is Peter Pan. They love trying new things. You know, I go to, a, I go to the same restaurant and I get the same thing. My uh, seven friends think that I'm boring, and I probably am, because to them, a variety is the spice of life. When they are spiritually healthy and growing, they're not only fun and adventurous, but they are well-grounded and they are practical. Because they understand that happiness and joy is a gift of God's grace. And they have also learned how to embrace pain and failure and disappointment because they understand that that is also a gift. God's grace. But when they are unhealthy, they will seek to avoid pain at any cost. In fact, they have this unique ability to reframe their sadness or their failures to look like it was really a, a wonderful blessing from God that things went so badly. You know, people like that. They tend to have a hard time finishing things. When they get close to the end of a project, they, they start thinking about the next project. And they get so excited about that that they leave the other eight or nine projects behind to, to start on that other one. Sounding familiar? You got a number of projects at home that you just can't seem to bring to completion. I see several heads nodding. They tend to avoid heavy conversations. And when things get too serious, you can always count upon the seven to, to make a joke kind of bring things up a little lighter. And they tend to be uncomfortable with making long-term commitments. And more than any other type, they will seek instant gratification. And at times that can make them somewhat reckless. They are also heavily prone to addiction, especially gambling, because they, they love that adrenaline rush of the risk of losing everything and, and the excitement of gaining a, a quick fortune. Well, Pastor Jonathan is our only seven on staff, thank God. So, <laughs> sorry, that was a cheap shot. So let's watch how it impacts his life. Jonathan, another name for the type 7 enthusiast 
is the enthusiastic visionary. How does that fit you? Hmm. Well, I, I love life. I love, try to live life to the fullest, and I try to do new things. Um, I, I, I'm really ideation, innovation is, is at the core, and I, I, so I like the, the adventure of that, and I love it in ministry, especially, so. What is your deepest fear? I'd say my deepest fear is confinement. The fear of being scared of maybe just growing older and older and not and being more confined. What is your greatest need? Just the social energy. Um, I'm definitely like a great banquet party kind of guy, so I, I love to bring people together and just have fun and experience God in a way that's that maybe they uh, have never experienced communally. So how does the type seven, the enthusiast, impact your relationship with Christ? I know that I need to go and be alone with God. I, that's how I recharge. I need, I, I get it in community, but I know that I need to get away and just be with God because that's, that's really the attachment that I get that, that re, re-energizes me. So I like to be quiet and just listen and, and talk to God, pray and interact. And I do that a lot in the car. I do that a lot in the morning when the house is empty so there's no distractions. So I think that's the way that um, I experience that, that impactful ministry of, of God Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Don't you love uh, Pastor Jonathan's uh, energy and, and excitement for life? I, I wish I had um, half the number of friends uh, that he does. Um, if you probe a little into a seven's early childhood, you, you're more than likely to find uh, abandonment issues. Uh, perhaps their parents divorced or there was a death in the family or perhaps they moved from house to house without much notice. And, and what begins to happen is that child gets the message that nobody is taking care of them, that they must take care of themselves. And, and they feel like they never have enough, uh, that they always need more. And so, you know, more ice cream, more alcohol, more possessions, more adventures. It's how they deal uh, with their pain. Hence the sin that they sometimes struggle with is the sin of gluttony. Now in the Bible, gluttony refers to an inordinate fondness for something. Now we oftentimes uh, connect gluttony with overeating, but it's much more than just food. In fact, Christian author Maxie Dunham describes gluttony as a misplaced hunger. It's the pursuit of pleasure that never completely satisfies. And so we can overindulge in anything, right? We can overindulge in food and shopping and work and, and, and exercise, video games uh, or social media. And some of those addictions we can keep hidden, but some of them we cannot. And sometimes it will, it will create shame and, and guilt. And, and some of those things will begin to interfere with us living the kind of life we want to live. They harm our health, they harm our relationships, and they harm our spiritual lives. Because we use them to medicate our emotional needs. And so to the rest of us, it appears to be a self-destructive behavior, but really it's our way of self-help. We use that to deal with our stress, with our fear, 
with our depression, boredom, poor self-esteem, fatigue, or frustration. And they can become a replacement for something that we are lacking in our lives, such as love or approval or significance. And of course, the ironic thing is that most of these things are good. I mean, food, drink, and sex, all wonderful gifts of God. But when, they, when we misuse them, then they become uh, addictive. And if there's anybody in the Bible who wrestled more with gluttony, it was King Solomon. Now, his father, King David, um, spent most of his reign fighting wars with neighboring kingdoms. And it seems to have left him little time to be a good parent. I mean, his family was a mess. His son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Her brother, Absalom, plots and murders Amnon. Then Absalom conspires against his father David, and civil war breaks out. But Absalom is killed in the attempt. And then Adonijah, David's second son, he tries to usurp the throne, and he is caught and executed. Rape, murder, rebellion, adultery. And you thought your family had problems. Well, finally, the succession question is answered. Solomon ascends to the throne, and he begins well. God speaks to him and says, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon asks for only one thing. Do you remember what it is? Wisdom to be the kind of leader that he wants to be. And the writer of King, First Kings describes the state of the nation this way. He says, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And they ate and they drank and were happy. (laughs) Good times. Israel is at her zenith. Wealth and power and abundance. Again, chapter 10, the Bible records that the king made silver as common as stone. And so he begins this massive building project. The temple his palaces, the walls around Jerusalem. Entire cities began to spring up. Stables for as many horses and and terraces are built. But the Bible also records the dark side of Solomon's leadership. He used slaves, forced labor, to build all of these projects. And in chapter 11, we find an even darker side of Solomon. It says that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You see, his insatiable need for more ruins his life with God. And so the author of 1 Kings would say this, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And so the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. You see what happened? Solomon seemed to have it all, but it was not enough. He had to have more. And so Solomon spent most of his life seeking the next thing that would bring him more happiness or more pleasure. And we get to hear it from his own mouth. In the book of Ecclesiastes, traditionally ascribed to Solomon, we we have him expressing 
uh, this very thing. And, and, and listen as I read from chapter 2. He says this. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to me to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? So I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding my wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards. I made gardens and, and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone else in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. And I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was, my, and this was the reward for all my toil. Now listen to verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, and nothing was gained under the sun. Solomon discovered that the pursuit of more was an illusion, never has satisfied, and never will. Now contrast Solomon's life with the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 4, he writes this one verse that will just wreck you when you come to understand it. He said, I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation. How did he do that? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians, most likely from a Roman prison and so everything had been stripped away from him, his freedom. Everything's been taken away. And yet, as you read through the book of Philippians, you will see a man who is happy. In fact, six times in the short little letter, he uses the word rejoice. I mean, the whole tone of his letter is just pure joy. How did he do that? How did he learn to be content in any and every circumstance? What's the secret that he has learned? And as I read and as I reread this this passage, it became clear to me that the Apostle Paul was totally independent of his external circumstances because he had learned to be totally dependent upon God. Paul had learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, hungry or well-fed, living in plenty or in want, flying first class or staying at the Motel 6, um, eating at Boca or, or White Castle, it didn't matter. Paul says he experienced it all, and he learned how to be content in any and every situation. So what does it mean to be content? What is contentment? Uh, I think it is simply the, the, the satisfied heart. 
it's not achieved by getting everything that we want, but Paul says by training the heart to experience full joy and peace even when we don't get what we want. So how did Paul do that? How did he train himself? I think, first of all, he stayed focused on the positive and learned how to ignore his circumstances. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says that his imprisonment had actually served to advance the gospel. So here he is in jail. It looks like his, his, his mission to, to share the gospel is being thwarted, and, he said, and yet he says this, that, that more people are sharing the gospel because of it. He was actually able to see good things coming out of his adverse circumstances. And you and I, we can do the same. And we do that by thanking God for the evidence of his care, whether it's in the small little things or whether it's in the large things. And we need to be careful about what we, what we put into our minds. Paul writes in, in Philippians 4, he says, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Paul says, think about these things. You see, Paul stayed focused. Secondly, Paul trained himself to be content by remembering that his strength was in Christ. In verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now think about the context of this. You see, Paul had actually already been uh, to, to the city of Philippi about 10 years earlier. You can read about it in Acts uh, chapter 16. He shows up in this town. He talks about the, about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and one woman, she hears it. She opens her heart to the gospel. She come, becomes a Jesus follower. And her name is Lydia, and she's a successful businesswoman. But one day, they are heading for a place of prayer, and, and they run into a woman who has an evil spirit. And, and Paul sets her free. She has this, this fortune-telling spirit, and, and the, her owners uh, realize they've just lost a great deal of money. You know, whenever you threaten somebody's pocketbook, that's when you get into trouble. And so they arrested Paul, and they beat him, and they put him in jail along with Silas. And the Bible tells us it's about midnight, and, and they're praying. Silas and Paul are praying, and they're singing hymns to God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was unjustly in jail, I don't think I'd be doing that. I mean, I, I, I am a great whiner. Nobody can complain as well as I do. That's what I would be doing. God, why? Here I am trying to serve you, and what do you do? You, you put me in this awful jail. But not Paul and Silas. They're, they're praying. They're worshiping. They stay focused on God's great promises rather than focus on the negative and their horrible situation they found themselves in. And what happens? An earthquake rattles their prison doors. They open up, and they're able to share the gospel with, with the jailer. He and his whole family come to faith in Christ and are baptized, and he, he takes them home, and he cares for their wounds that they received and their beatings, and the gospel is advanced. But they can only do that because of God's strength in them. You see, I think if you, if you had interviewed Paul after this event, he would have said, yeah, yeah, that, that wasn't our strength. That was the strength of Christ. That was beyond us. We were only able to do that because of the presence of Christ with us in that jail cell that night. You see, the presence of Christ is with you. And you go through that round of chemo. The presence of Christ is, is with you 
as you downsize and, and cut back because you're going to move from, from two salaries to one salary. The presence of, of Christ is with you when you begin to see a significant relationship and start to go south. And the presence of Christ is with you when you see your loved one begin to slowly slip away because of, of dementia. You see, Paul can only be fully alive to God and other people to, to have the full joy and, and the deep peace that he had because of the strength of Christ in his life. Paul discovered that's the key, that, that, that's the secret to the contented life. It's the, it's the presence and, and the power of Christ in us. Christ is with you, and you're not alone. And Paul learned that in that, that he could do everything through Christ who gave him strength. And then lastly, Paul trained himself to find contentment in his circumstances by learning how to trust God. In, in verse 10, Paul is writing a, a thank you gift for the gift the church in Philippi had sent. It seems that that, that church had, had taken up a love offering and they had sent it to Paul in, in prison by this guy named Epaphroditus. Imagine that. You're sitting in a jail cell, things are terrible, and suddenly the door opens and in walks this guy with a bag of money. <laughs> Epaphroditus was from the congregation of Philippi. He traveled there from from Rome, all the way from Philippi to Rome to visit Paul in jail. And it wasn't an easy trip, but he came to be with Paul and to support Paul and, and to serve him, to, to provide some friendship to Paul and to help him financially in his difficult time. Now, folks, the Philippian church wasn't a wealthy church. In fact, there are hints that they were pretty poor. But they wanted to help their friend Paul in his time of need. And so they gave money that they could not afford. And Paul could never afford to pay them back. And, and so he writes this to them. He says, I need you to know something. He says, I am so very grateful that you sent this gift. But I was content before you sent the money, and I'm at peace now. Because I have learned the secret of being content, whatever the circumstances. Some of us here today, that could be a real game changer. Because when we talk about the contented life, what we're talking about is freedom. And there's nothing more important to the seven than that freedom. You heard Jonathan talk about that fear, that fear of containment, that fear of not having uh, that freedom. Because they, they want to, you know, that's their core need. Core need is to be free. And so contentment frees you up to enjoy the things you have without thinking that wholeness and joy and peace is just one more click on the Amazon website. Solomon never learned this. When Melinda and I started out in ministry some 41 years ago, uh, we decided that we we're going to have to trust God for all of life, but especially for our finances. And so we made the decision. 10% goes to God and God's work. 10% goes to our savings account, and we would learn to live on 80%. Now, at the time, we were making next to nothing, but we did it because we wanted to be obedient and we wanted to live a generous life. And it was that giving that enabled us to, to 
that kept us from always needing more and more. And I can testify that we never missed a meal, that we always had the clothing that we needed. And it was amazing how faithful God was at providing what we needed at just the right moment and how generous people were to us. There's this cycle of giving and receiving. Paul says in verse 15, he says, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, he says, except you Philippians, you alone. God provides for our needs. God takes care of us. I can tell you that God did that for my family more times than I could ever possibly mention. And so we receive from God, and then we take what God has given us, and we invest it into the work of God to further the gospel. We give. It's a cycle of giving and receiving. It's about generosity. And Paul says not many Christians did this, but, in, but the Philippians did. And so he writes in verse 19, And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And so they gave. And now God will take care of their needs. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? See, I think that's what God has asked from you and me since the day that this planet was created. God says to us, I want you to trust me. Can you trust that I'm going to take care of your needs? Can you trust me to take care of you? And nothing will bring more healing to a seven than those words. You see, when a seven believes those words, they'll begin to grow in their life with Christ. They'll begin to find the strength to, to reject the idea that, that more is better. In fact, they may even come to believe that, that less is better. They'll be able to spend more time reflecting on the pain of their past to, to begin to answer that question, did somebody hurt me? When did I feel abandoned? And then to do the hard work of forgiveness when, when that's necessary. And they may begin to find the strength to stop running away from their pain, from their disappointment, and from their failure. They may learn to begin to sit with those negative feelings and then to, to realize that that is much a part of life. The pain and failure is much a part of life as, as the good times. And so to you sevens today, and I would say to each and every one of us here today, how would it change your life? How would it change your life if you're able to, to let go of the need for more and surrender it all to Christ? Are you ready to do that? Let's pray. God, we look at the life of Solomon and his need for more. How the sin of gluttony had, had worked its way into his very heart and how he got to the end of his life, God, and he felt ruined. And thank you for the example of Paul. Who, though he started off rough, through it all, God, he learned to depend upon you totally and completely. And he found in that the satisfaction of his heart, the contentment of his life. Help us, God. Help us to learn to trust you. Help us to learn to surrender it all to you that we might find that you are there always with us, that you never leave us, and you will never 
ever forsake us. We pray.